And welcome back to another episode of Under the Radar SFF Books Podcast. I'm your host, Blaze, as always. And I am extremely thankful and honored to be joined by none other than App Shadow himself, Adrian Tchaikovsky, to do a deep dive of Shadows of the Apt, one of my favorite series uh, in the entire world. I love this series to death. And if it wasn't for this series, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. So, Adrian, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. And that's that you've given me a, a hell of an introduction. And I hope I can live up to it. Well, I mean, your resume speaks for itself. So you've already lived up to it and then some. So for those of you who um, who are following my podcast, I did do a brief overview episode for uh, Shadows of the App. You can give that a uh, listen if you haven't already. Um, the way we're going to set up this episode is we're going to do non-spoiler discussion um, with Adrian for most of the episode. And I will give warnings when the spoiler section comes up towards the end. So don't worry, we'll let you know if you haven't read the series at all. So Adrian, Shadows of the App, your debut epic fantasy series. And I know I'm taking you back to the first book was published in 2008. Could you um, just go through what the inspiration was for this um, series? And I know the first several books were published pretty close to each other. So it must have been uh, very tight knit and you had everything kind of sorted out beforehand. Yeah, I mean, to to answer the last point first, um, I submitted the first book to um, sort of agents and publishers when I had written what turned out to be the first four books in the series, um, because this was I this was kind of my last fling at trying to get published. That um, was my I I was coming up to thirty five. I decided if I hadn't got anything got anywhere in the industry by thirty five, I would probably just chuck it all in. And whether I would have done that or not, I don't know. But um, I was not getting published and, you know, trying with books. Our book after book was definitely having a bit of an impact on my mental health, in all honesty. And so I thought, right, I'm going to find a, a setting, a world I really, really love. And the world of Shadows of the Apt was the world of a role-playing game I ran back in university. Um, and it is the way it is because... I have always had this enormous fondness for insects. And so I thought, right, why not instead of elves and dwarves and things like that, why not a fancy world where everyone has kind of insect derived powers and those things like, you know, flight and telepathy and all of these sort of very loosely insect inspired ideas are completely normal for everyone in the world. They're not considered to be magical or unusual at all. It's something that everyone can do. And precisely what you can do depends on what kingdom you are and the kingdom are the different are sort of the people or people who have different kind of like a patron insect or spider or i mean the the remit kind of expands so that it's it's a quite a wide variety of invertebrates by the end of the the series and we go under the water under the sea and we um there are slug kindred and they're all sorts of crazy stuff i remark when I, I revisited it not that long ago a remarkable amount of which is actually foreshadowed in the very first book and i'm not entirely sure how i managed to get that much kind of early season early planning for books i had no no assurance i would ever get to write but it's there um and so yes so the it's a big epic fantasy series it's a world where people are have these kind of insect inspired abilities it's a world where there's this big shift from the olden days of magic to a very technological kind of steampunk level of um, development which accelerates through the book and and means that the world at the end of the book is very different to the world at the start socially and technologically which is I think that fantasy doesn't do that often um, fantasy tends to be a circular restoration narrative where you know the, it is the return of the king and it's a going back to an older day when things were nicer and the dark lord wasn't uh, tearing up the place and I, I tried to get out from uh, from under that and try to have a world where there was a definite sort of arrow of history going on. And also, you also have actual giant insects kicking about because why not? Because that was fun. And they are draft animals and riding animals and occasional kind of combat menaces that people that people run into throughout the book. And yes, it, it was my I had a very definite aim by them because I'd kind of been writing books for long enough to get a sense of what what might get a publisher's attention and so my key practical aim in writing it i wanted to write something that ticked all the boxes of an epic fantasy and at the same time was as different as possible to the stock tropes of it and i think i've that's a line i just about walked with the early books of the series 
Well, you definitely walked that line. I can't remember any series back then or even now that even touches what you actually written in this in this series, especially with the themes that you obviously it's the, it's the war with the empire versus the free the free cities and the collegium. You tread the line of an old age of mysticism and magic, which is kind of a beginning of book one, which is empire in black and gold, which is on the outskirts, except for in a few random places, and the industrialization. Uh, comes up. And you also talk about the different kindin and their aspects. They're either apt, they can use technology like the Beatles, or inapt, which is like more of the moth kindin. So you had this all very much planned out for, from the go. I'm just wondering how much of this was pre-written, how much of it like you learned as you go? Because the history in this uh, epic series is just so vast. I'm sure you can write, write like a whole nother series just based off of that. Oh, you know, well, I absolutely... Could. I mean, I probably won't ever do like a prequel series because I feel prequels, you, you prequels kind of have to be extra good because there is that innate problem. We know how it all turns out. So you really have to get people very, very um, invested in the characters, really, of the prequel, the, the minor people, not the big historical figures, but the minor people that the book is about, because otherwise I think a prequel is inherently less interesting um, because of that. Uh, and I shouldn't say never, maybe I will, but um, the idea of taking things forward is also there or just going somewhere else in the world um, because there are definitely places in the world that are quite detailed in my head that never get a chance to turn up in the books, um, despite my kind of renting the plot backwards and forwards to cover as much ground as possible. So a lot of what is in the books was in the role-playing game that I ran, which is all this entirely, yeah, with the homegrown system, it was entirely invented by me. I had quite a, quite a successful sort of run of it with uh, during my university days. And so the starting setup of the world, um, the map, the initial Kinden, the, a fair amount, you know, several of the places, a fair, several of the characters, a fair amount of the history is all from those early, early role-playing games. And then obviously it does, as I say, it kind of the development and the, the kind of the global nature of what's going on just sort of accelerate through the books. Um, much in the way, I mean, weirdly enough, and I'm not in any way comparing myself to him as a writer, but um, one of the other fantasy series that really does embrace that idea of, well, actually people innovate and things change is um, Discworld. And you, you know, the development of uh, Pratchett adds more and more aspects to the Discworld. He thinks through very thoroughly how they would change the world and how they would expand the world and also weirdly shrink the world. Because obviously, if you can communicate faster or travel faster, then the world is smaller for you. And you can, you know, more places in that world come, in, come into, your, um, into your kind of sphere of influence. Yeah, excellent. I'm a, I am a Terry Pratchett uh, fan, <laughs> having gone through all of them, but, you know, making my way through them with his, um, with his whimsical uh, humor. You got to love Terry with all your heart. And also, you did this through a role-playing game, and you came up with these ideas for Kinden, which is basically for lesser terms, like the different type, uh, races of, mm -hmm. of the people in your book. And it's just very interesting how you set these up and how the Kinden, they're kind of like play off of each other. And an example of that is you have the beetle Kinden who are good at building technology and, and machines and you have, and like the ant Kinden who are like the, these warriors and they have telepathic, um, powers, the mantis kid, the mantid Kingdom, uh, they're, they're these fierce warriors and they're bitter enemies with the spider kingdom. So there's all these little in intricacies of each kingdom, who their enemies are, what their tendencies are. Obviously they have their own magic and their thought processes in that. How much of that was also pre pre-planned versus going, going on the fly. And, um, did you have like a set when you were starting, like, okay, these are the kingdom I wanted to do. They just keep like flowing, flowing as you wrote the series. So, um, the basic setup for most, well, let, all right, the stereotype of most of the kingdom was very much um, as it appeared in the game. And But one of the things I worked really hard on is that the stereotype is not necessarily the truth. And it's certainly not universal. It's not, you know, it's not like, oh, yes, all the orcs are like this and all the elves are like this. It's, so you, as you meet more and more characters, you realize actually, right, you're meeting lots of characters who play very much against the stereotype of their kingdom. And in fact, the stereotype of the kingdom is frequently how those people are seen by outsiders rather than how they actually are. So you do get, um, yeah, the Mantis kingdom are live and die for your honor. And you do get treacherous Mantis kingdom. You get compassionate 
um, Spiderkind and you get rogue ants who've left their city. You get um, pacifist wasps. You get the whole range because they, because the whole point is they are people. And it's not that... So the wasp empire is the major villain of the series, but the wasp kingdom are not evil people per se. They have a society and um, its institutions, which are which are highly problem problematic. But you meet plenty of individuals who are bucking against that, or who are just working within that, in a way to show that they're that that's just you know they are the people that their society have made, but they're not innately wicked, moustache twirling villains. Um, I mean, one of the things you get in uh, in one of the later books, uh, the Air War, the focus is very much on a particular phase of the conflict. And a large chunk of the books just follows um, aviators from both sides of the war. And they are, you get that, you know, there is that trope. They both think they are on the right side. They are both following orders. They are both doing what, what they feel they should they should be doing. And when you're with each individual group, ideally, you feel very sympathetic for them, even though next time, you know, in the next scene, you're going to be feeling sympathetic for the people who are trying to kill them. Similarly, we were talking about you know, so some of these, some of the kindred are technologically capable. They are the apt uh, of Shadow's fame. Some of them are magically capable. They are inapt. They are decidedly on the kind of the on the downswing of history at the moment. They used to be in charge of things quite a long time ago. But the conflict, the major conflict in the book, is not an apt inapt conflict. Um, so you get people from both sides of that particular division on both sides of the war, and various other kind of conflicts and and. Um, ancient divisions and feuds and so forth come in and none of them map neatly to well obviously all the people on this side think this and all the people on that side think this that so you get on both on both sides of any given conflict a very large and diverse range of characters weighing in which i mean i think that traditional heroic and epic fantasy in the past had a bit of a problem with with a moral simplicity, um, and obviously, you know, these days actually the standard the standard fantasy you get is is very very morally grey, um, which may or may not also be a form of a form of moral simplicity. If literally every single character is just unreliable, morally unreliable in the same way, but um, one of the things I was trying to do was I wanted to get out of that. Well, all of these people are bad, or all of this this faction is bad, or the thing they're necessarily very very simple because. It's very true the Wasp Empire are the bad guys, but there are plenty of times when you can look at, say, Collegium, which is the the city held up very much as their social and moral opposite, and say, actually, yeah, there are there are real problems with the way things are done there. They are not, yeah, they are not a kind of a perfect Western style democracy where everyone has a has a voice, um, and you know everything is lovely. They are a city that has done away with slavery which is something that's highly prevalent in a lot of the rest of the um of the rest of the world especially in the um amongst the wasps um they are a city where people who are not from the lo from the local kingdom are still welcomed and can gain sort of full rights as citizens but it's very obviously they talk a very good game that they don't quite live up to when it comes to things like you know to civil rights and equality and things and so forth yeah and I'm so glad you brought up the um, Air War that after re-listening re to it on um, Audible. And if you guys want to start the series, um, Ben Allen did a fantastic job doing the uh, doing the voice for everybody. I was completely blown away. Air War is my favorite uh, book in the in the series. Just everything from the air battles and everything that goes on in that book is just top notch. And going back to, you're right, they are morally great characters on both sides of the conflict. In Collegium, uh, Stemwold Maker, who we'll talk about in a little bit, he's kind of like, I consider him somewhat of like the main main focal point character, at least in the first several books. Um, he's fighting against, like, not actually fighting, but he's having like inner conflicts with people in Collegium, like in the higher ups, trying to get things done. And on the other side of the empire, you have... Um, Thalric, who has his own um, own issues within the Rakef, which is the um, like the Empire, like kind of like secret like secret service type thing. They're they're doing stuff outside of the of the Empire, so he's fighting the inner conflicts over there. And it's just the continuous back and forth with that, the layering and layering and layering of secrets and um, twists that come up with each in each book. It's just 
it just keeps you guessing the whole way through. I wasn't able to predict um, anything uh, in this series. Uh, it just completely blew me away. And with that, why don't we talk about some of these characters? Uh, well, why don't we start with probably the fan favorite of everyone, especially mine, uh, Tissamon. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that that's a universal thing. Could you go in through the character of uh, Tissamon uh, when you first started uh, creating him and how he kind of evolved on you um, throughout the series? And we'll get into the spoiler discussions later involving him. So, Yeah, so... Uh, Tissamon is that, and it, it's it's an archetype that that was kind of turning up in the books around that time because I mean Abercrombie plays with us as well uh, in especially in the heroes. But Tissamon is your traditional fantasy hero. He's almost a Robert E. Howard sort of character. He's this unmatched warrior. He's he's um, has panther like litheness and grace, as doubtless Harold would describe him. Um, he is from a culture which is all about this this very simple idea of honor and revenge and all of this sort of thing. And he is in a world that has absolutely moved on from that. And so the whole the whole point of Tissamon is him kind of desperately trying to keep up with how the world is working and what is happening and what is happening with um, his old friend Stenwald, who is a much more sort of urbane and sophisticated person from a much more complex society effectively and Tissamon is almost it was like the poster child for really really bad decisions throughout the throughout the book but I think that's part of what makes him very very sympathetic he's a lot he's not Geralt of Rivia but he they're a certain similar feel of someone who just they are very very good at what they do and simultaneously they are profoundly unsuited for the world and society and the uses uh, that they find themselves in, and the uses that it wants to put them to. And so, you know, you left to his own devices, you can pretty much guarantee that Tissamon will take his sort of thousand-year-old fighting art and do the most sort of ridiculously direct and useless thing with them, because that's kind of all he knows, which makes him tremendously fun to write for. Yeah, and, and you know, the Tissamon has a plot arc, and it is—it's a profoundly tragic plot arc, and it mirrors the the arc that the Mantis Kingdom as a whole have, because you know he is very much the child of his society, uh, even though he's kind of events have kind of made him something of an outcast to it. And as the war hots up, and as technology hots up, you've got these people who are extremely good fighters one on one not necessarily the people you want to try and take on an enormous organized army with very powerful ranged weapons um just trying to work out well it, it's a fight we obviously have to fight and then trying to work out how they even fit into a modern sort of military situation um with their you know with with spears and bows and so forth uh, that's wonderful um yeah tissamon and you learn more about the mantis kingdom especially i believe in book the end of book two or book three, what are the mantis and how, what their traditions are and what their practices are. Uh, and that just, le that just continues to grow throughout the, throughout the series. And you're right. Tissamon is his greatest strength is his pride and determination and his willing to execute what needs to be done. But that can also be his like greatest downfall. Cause he doesn't know how to see past his own, his own flaws and see like the bigger picture. So he's kind of like stuck. He's living in a modern world, but he's kind of stuck in the past of what used to be. Um, and on that same path, what used to be was the Mantid's Kingdom were the servants of the Moth, who were like the, the Moth Kingdom, who are these big magic users and they they predict uh, the future. They have their foresight. Uh, I, I forget the the phrase that they learn, that they say in the book, um, something of the white, something and servants, uh, so, of the servants of the green, masters of the gray. Yeah, uh, that sticks throughout the, the whole series. And I just loved, I just love that aspect of it i think do you feel like you said tissamon was an easy character to write you, was he your favorite character to write or who else uh, would be on top of that list oh Lord, well the thing, i mean i mean one thing it's worth pointing out that there are as as is common with long and epic fantasy series there are a lot of characters uh and it is it is i mean you mentioned ben ben allen's audio narration earlier and he absolutely knocks it out of the park with with this enormous number of characters to whom he still gives distinct voices, which are also entirely in keeping with based on you know what kingdom that character is and where they come from, and he somehow navigates this ridiculous maze I set him of all these different sort of cultural relationships 
absolutely um, note perfectly. So yes, he does an incredible job. And and I've forgotten the question. This, sorry, this is the thing I do. I, I will ramble off on a thing. Remind me what the the main thrust of your question is that got me to that point. Oh no worries. I was asking because you mentioned that Tissamon was uh, one of your favorite, uh, one of the best. Characters, oh, favorite right? character. Yes, favorite yeah, characters. Yeah. Right. I mean that is at that. It's tough because not only are there so many characters, there are kind of several classes almost of character that come in as you know because it's a 10 book series um characters die new characters are introduced and it's hard because a lot of them it's actually quite minor characters um there's a character called balkus who is kind <laughs> of the wedge antilles of the um of the series because he's kind of there and he's always helping but he's never really one of the main characters and he just kind of turns up what i try and do with minor characters mostly because i'm very very keen on continuity of of character um most of the minor characters, you could almost have the book in uh, the series in one book told from their perspective and their own particular arc of kind of triumphs and falls and or kind of tragic end, depending on who it is. And you could absolutely do it for Balkus. You could do it. There's um, a flykind and effectively bureaucrat called Tabero who you meet in the first book and who, who just keeps coming back through several books in various different guises as he navigates the kind of the turbulent politics of the empire. He has his um, his own just individual plot arcs almost hidden within the book. And you could take his bits out and you would have an entirely coherent story. Um, and then around the time you get to um, the air war, you've got a new class of students coming out. Yeah, you've got um, the Ant Spider and um, Leedswell and so forth. And they are, that group of characters is enormously fun to write for because at this point, I know the world very well and the readers know the world very well. And then having a group of relatively naive characters coming in who have great ideas about how things should work and who patently are not, those ideas are not going to survive what we know about how, how the reality works around here is, is also an enormously fun thing. Because at that point, it's almost me looking over the characters' heads at the readers and, and kind of us exchanging looks about how this is all going to go. Excellent. And... Another one of my absolute favorite characters, I think you and I have talked about this before, is um, Totho. Now, his character arc throughout the series is interesting to say the least, but let's just stick to book one for now. Um, so Totho, he's a half-bred uh, kinden. I believe it's uh, Beetle and Ant. And he's a very, very skilled um, technician. He builds weapons for the, for the Collegiate, and he builds other types of machinery. Um, but he is a character. He's fawning after um, Che Maker, who is mm -hmm. Stemwold's niece. Uh, that's a that's a plot that continues throughout the the series, and he's a character who I always felt was after. He kind of reminded me of myself growing up. Um, very shy, very timid, very smart, but he um, he's kind of like afraid of his own shadow. He's afraid to make the wrong decision uh, over and over again. He thinks his heart is in the right place, but oftentimes it usually isn't um can you uh just give me the beginnings of totho and how he sort of like evolved in a non-spoiler way and then we'll get into the spoilers section later uh, with his <laughs> with his with his character because he always always fascinated me and even at reading uh listening to the audiobooks a second time it still resonates with me yeah so he he is um totho is an artificer he like you said i mean he, he starts off as a student he kind of as the books go on, he becomes more and more skilled. And I mean, from a variety of things that happen in the early books, he probably has more impact on the way the world, the entire world developed than any other character in the book, purely because of stuff he invents. And he is a student of Stemwald Maker, so he's been taught effectively you know, the morality and ethics of, of Collegium and what is right and how to go about things. And as you say, he absolutely uh, is carrying a torch for Stenwald's niece, Shearwell, um, who does not in any way reciprocate this. And which is very, which is a very common thing in fantasy. Again, it's a very common setup. And one of the things I did want to make, make it very plain at this point is it's just, this is not actually Che Maker's problem. She likes Totho a great deal as a friend. The fact that he he has romantic aspirations does not impose any obligations on her to reciprocate them. And that's something I've hopefully very clear in, in the book. But it's also something that Totho has a great deal of difficulty adjusting for. And he kind of, it eats him up. And you see that quite from, you know, from about 
even midway through the first book, it is very obviously a thing that's not going to happen. And that's something he finds it hard to, well, he finds it basically impossible to accept. And therefore the ever-changing relationship between him and Cheerwell as throughout really the all 10 books of the series is one of the one it's one of the um the few arcs that actually lasts from the beginning of book one to the end of book 10 um becomes an enormous uh enormous part of the um the sort of the connective tissue of the books and he's not he like a lot of characters he's not a he's not in any way a bad person there are some i mean there he gets a very he plays a major role in um scarab path book five where you get a lot of time inside his head and yeah, he is hopefully a very, very sympathetic person, and he's kind of aware that he's screwed as far as what he wants out of the world goes. Um, and at the same time, he's this illustration of the capacity for very well-meaning people to cause a colossal amount of damage. Yeah, Tothos, Tothos arc was kind of one that um, ate at my heartstrings on some level. And on the other side of the coin, you see how his choices affect those around him. Some of them he intends, some of them he just doesn't intend. He seems like he's oblivious to the impact that he's having on some other other characters. And that that just carried. And I it always it always stuck with me. He was always one of the more um I don't want to say inspiring. You, oh, sorry, go ahead. Um well I mean one of the one of the other things you get through him and that plugs in very much to the the basic precept of the world is he kind of has a chip on his shoulder about the olden the values of the olden days he is not a warrior i mean he actually does end up doing quite a remarkable amount of fighting but he's very much not a sort of a toe-to-toe warrior he sees tissamon sort of rushing around and, and cutting people into chunks and he is aware of the this kind of allure of these olden days and the magic and all of that stuff that people that people don't really believe in but at the same time it obviously has some sort of influence and you get this thing quite frequently with him when he's in a, this this point where right you now have the key decision to make. He said it, it almost comes down to right. I now need to show that I am a great warrior and I'm going to hit something really hard and be <clears throat> be kind of um, excessively aggressive just to, just to, because this is what people are supposed to do. Right? This is this is how how things are done. This is how heroes act. And so I mean, you you get this constant flip flop with him of kind of. Hooray for Totho and oh no, Totho, don't do that. Yeah, every time, every time I read the section about Totho doing uh, his deeds, it's uh, it's definitely a whirlwind going on in my head. I can imagine everyone who's reading it for the first time will have those as well. Um, yeah, can't can't help yourself. Um, so, just a few more few more questions on the non spoiler section, and then we'll jump into the into mm. the spoilers. Um, I I was always curious because especially in book one, which I believe has enough material to be it, its own trilogy, like there's so much packed <laughs> into it. Um, basically, in book one is really, and this is not too spoil too spoilery. Um, really, the only time we get like a front row view of the uh, Mothkinden and into the old old ways of. Uh, like the magic and the and like the foresight and the prophecies stuff like that was it always just planned to just have that one really small a uh, big picture with the moth kingdom because we for the most of the series we really don't get that much of an influence or we see much of their um characters i should say we, yeah we see um we visit them in book one and we do we come back in book four mostly because you know the we kind of, you know, we see from book one that at some point the empire is going to be heading that way, and in book four we actually get to see that, and I appreciate that. That is something probably best saved for post spoiler. But um, after that, um, I mean, one one of the things about the Moth Kingdom is, you know, they have done their level best to stop history happening anywhere they have any kind of influence, which region has very obviously shrunk over the past few centuries, um, and so you could keep going back to the Moth Kingdom, uh, but you wouldn't necessarily see a great deal changing. You get to see a certain amount of, um, you. so what, what you get to see is fr more frequently, you get to see Mothkin and who get sent out. So they have their own kind of intelligence network, which is actually quite good. And so you see quite a lot of that in operation and you see the way they, in, they interact with other, the other magical powers, the other old powers, some of whom are doing a bit better than them um, because they've adapted to the times more. 
and as as kind of uh, you know there is there is this kind of thread of rediscovering old magic and as that starts to happen obviously the moths get interested you also see a fair number of renegades and so a lot of what you get about the moth kingdom as a culture you get um in reflection by characters who are very peripheral to it like in i i mean i think it's um Blood of the Mantis, there is a kind of a renegade moth magician who is actually quite one of the more powerful magicians you run into in the entire series, but he is basically utterly wretched at the same time because he's been kicked out because of whatever he was doing magically that did not was not orthodox. And so he's basically what he's looking for, despite his enormous personal power, is a way to get back in. Got it. And um, you do see apart from the first book where you get like a front row seat into the inner workings of the moth society, you also, you see on the outskirts, you see the ones who have been either kicked out or they're on missions, um, sort so of speak. And it gets a, again, that's on the spoiler section. We'll get into some, some aspects of that. Um, and the last part I wanted to bring up before we get into the spoilers are the extensive work you've done with um, half breeds in, in the mm. series, Totho being one of them. Obviously, they're looked down upon because they're not considered pure blood, but they're they're scattered throughout the the world and how they, as you said with Totho, they always have a chip on their shoulder. They're trying to prove themselves that they're lower, I don't know what the term is, lower uh, breed, lower birth, is not like a deterrent of how they are. Even, even another character we never talked about, um, Tynisa, who uh, is also one of Stemwell Maker's uh, nieces she's um a spider kinden and i won't mention the other part because that's spoilers um how she's like a this fierce um she's in training to be this great um warrior she's a she's a swordsman and her plot arc continues throughout the 10 book series and how twist and turns with with those so i just wanted to get your little um feedback on um the half breeds and how you wanted how you built them and how you wanted them to move about in this in this world and move with the other characters yeah so um, i it's um the, the 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 setup of the world. And I I, w I will say, if I was writing that series now, I would probably use a less charged term. And when I was writing it back back in the mid two thousands, I did not really think that one through. And I think there are probably better ways of um, of phrasing it. Um, but the idea is that there is a big societal taboo against um, crossbreeding between the kindred, and it just doesn't happen very often. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's. Um, I mean, I don't want to talk go start pretending there is any kind of comprehensible genetics going on with the insect kingdom but effectively children between kingdom are is is just a less likely thing which is yeah because frank other, otherwise you it yeah it, it, you wouldn't get the same sort of um identifiably separate kingdom that you do in the book although there is there's a strong i think i'm pretty sure there's an explicit suggestion later late on in the late in the books that no one is as as, as pure blood in inverted commas as they might claim to be because things don't work like that but i um one of the things i wanted to look at in the book is prejudice and it's it's interesting it's one of the first times uh, i mean you get some societies where basically it's absolutely you know if you're in the wasp empire you absolutely get stomped on unless you are very very exceptional um you know you're you're pretty much straight you know pack, packed off straight off to be someone's property because they're yeah, it is kind of a horrible society but you also get um even in the first book it's where you start to see the cracks in that in collegium despite how they're being set up they're not actually as wonderful as they say because you've got a bit where stenwald kind of where totho approaches stenwald and says so you your 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 niece i'm very fond of her and stenwald has this moment was oh ah, uh, and you think okay so even with sten who is very much set up to be as enlightened as pretty much any character in the book is there is a problem there there is a definite prejudice problem there going on that is very deep in the society and Throughout the books, you meet quite a lot of um, characters of, of mixed ancestry, um, or in all over the place, and some of, the, and you meet some societies where they are much more accepted. Um, frequently, where the society themselves are somewhat outcast, like there is a effectively a, there is a pirate city um, later on in the books, and you get an awful lot of people of a variety of ancestry there, and nobody cares because they're pirates and they have other other priorities. And there are various other characters who've made their way in different ways or found their place. And it's it was just as well as the sort of the full-on sort of racial superiority doctrine that the wasps have got have going, 
where it is basically, you know, you have a, you are a wasp or you're a second class citizen, or you are even worse than that. I wanted to explore a variety of ways of looking at kind of othered, othered people at minor, at, at minority people. And that it was that, that was the line I, I decided to take because it, that was what kind of came out fairly naturally from the Kinden setup that I was working with. Oh, excellent. And um, before we switch over to uh, spoilers, I know you mentioned earlier in the in the episode um, that you have no set things to write anything further in this world. I certainly hope that changes over the over the coming coming years. You find some free time. Um, there are four other uh, no, kind of like novellas or like uh, I don't know if they're spinoffs of, of the series. Can you just talk briefly about those before we go to spoilers. Yes. So we've got uh, the Tales of the Apt. These are four volumes. There are. Let me see. The first two volumes are all short fiction. There, a lot of it is short fiction I wrote while writing the main series. Some of it went up on my website. There is, some of it is is brand new, um, and it kind of they are the stories are arranged in effectively chronological order, and they go from some. Um, I can't precisely how, but there's one quite that's that's quite quite a way decade or possibly even a century before. The first book starts, and the very last book in the second, uh, the very last story in the second book, is after the end of the tenth book, and so they kind of form this companion piece. And I think I set out in the books precisely where the books for the actual main books fall. Um, the third volume, which is kind of my favourite, is a set of four linked novellas about a. They're kind of pulp pulp novellas so you have a, a collegiate academic and his secretary doing a whole Phileas Fogg around the world exploration um terribly well-meaning and getting into an enormous amount of trouble and it's mostly my excuse to go places I didn't get to properly explore in the books but you also we the, the last one of those is uh not only after book 10 um and really it represent you get to see a kind of well that, you know the war's over and this is what they're this very odd situation of what's going on after the war and various characters who were very kind of part of the world of the main books are now feeling slightly edged out in the same way that Tissamon is is edged out in, you know in the earlier books because the world has moved on even from them um which is also and that fourth one is also the bridging novella to my other fantasy series set in that world, which is the Echo of the Fall, which you don't have to have read The Shadows of the Apt to read, but if you read Echoes of the Fall and you have, then you will start to recognize some of the stuff that is going on uh, from about the second book. Uh, and then the fourth um, of those books is a, a collection of stories by a variety of writers, including a couple of new ones from me, um all of which are set in the world of shadows of the apt um which was an enormous privilege uh, that people like the series enough to do so yeah there's uh, john Gwynn has read one written one tom lloyd and juliet mckenna and it's just amazing amazing writers who were good enough to write in that in that world for me oh excellent those are instantly going to come to the top of my of my list as soon as we're done recording <laughs> recording these um john Gwynn is one of my favorite authors so i didn't actually know that it was a collection of other authors who wrote in that world. I'm itching to get back into those. Excellent. Well, I think it's time to that we switch over to the uh, spoiler section. For those of you who have not read the series, uh, here, here's where we depart. Please consider picking up this great epic fantasy series or the audible. Ben Allen does a smashing job. Um, last warning, spoiler section. We're going to go in three, two, one. Okay. So, uh, Salute the Dark, book four in mm -hmm. the series. Probably one of the darker books I've read, and that climax of the end, where there was so much buildup and so much death, um, not the least of <laughs> which is, uh, is my favorite character, um, Tissamon. So he thops Uktebri, uh, kills him, destroys the shadow box. The shadow box, the still the ritual, Move, still moves on to uh, Sita. And then that arc continues to go on. But we're not done with Tissamon. He returns as a ghost who's haunting Che. At first, he, she thinks it's a chaos, but then it's actually um, Tissamon. Could you just go into that, like, book four sequence <laughs> and then how... <laughs> oh, you're asking you me for a lot of detail. It's a long, long removing time now. Yeah, I know. Um, um, and I apologize. So, uh, I mean, I then... think you've... you've, Sorry, you've 
you pretty much got it. So the the key thing here it's the uh, the Dorakian the the is a the mantis hold which was the site of this enormous ritual that the moths did intending to try and reverse the decline of magic which just went catastrophically wrong killed everyone involved and everyone involved ends up effectively all their their souls end up trapped in this this artifact the shadow box which presumably has a long and storied history before it ends up on some collector's shelf in collegium for reasons i honestly couldn't go into but would probably make if i ever wanted to do a prequel frankly that's probably where i'd start and it becomes the the magical thing that everyone's trying to get hold of throughout um the third book in the fourth book it ends up kind of in the worst hands possible worst hands possible and it's being used to fuel the ritual of Octebri, the Mons mosquito kingdom who is going to use it to basically create uh to turn the um to say say to the empress of the wasps into his kind of sort of zombie servant or however mind-controlled servant and therefore control the whole empire of the wasps and bring back his people um and this is where you get i mean again it's one of those things where you learn about the moths from reflection because you find out well the why the why the mosquito kingdom so rare because the moths had an enormous war with them tried to try to drive them into complete extinction as just one of the several big wars they had back in the old magical days that nobody these days really knows about because the moth are really closed mouth about their history. Um, and so, yes, Tissamon destroys the box, kills Octebri, um, despite the fact he is later remembered for the, as the person who killed the Emperor, which he didn't actually do, which um, is just one of those little fun things of, yes, everyone kind of misremembers what was happening because it was very, very chaotic and lots of people were dying. And this freeze this sort of empties the box all the Dirachian nastiness kind of gets released to go wherever it is anything anything ever goes which i'm profoundly vague about throughout the series although there was definitely a suggestion that there is somewhere that people go but tissamon obviously kind of gets caught up there's something left over and tissamon is there and because he kind of gets stopped from going where he's supposed to go he starts fighting his way back towards the world and it's kind of uh, one of the, there is a fair description. I think it's in Heirs of the Blade about ghosts. The, one of the characters in Heirs of the Blade is effectively a professional medium, and she understands ghosts. And she talks about the idea that w w a ghost is not really the person. A ghost is this kind of. Um, there's a lot of talk about um, the world being like um, a fabric of threads. Throughout, it's a very common metaphor that magicians use in this series, and it's the idea that if you have someone who imprints hard enough in that, they leave almost like the shape of themselves in it, but they leave the shape of a particular aspect of themselves. And so, with Tissamon, it's kind of that vengeful, bloodthirsty fighting part of him. And so, yes, at first of all, he's hanging about being a very angry ghost and and just menacing Che, and then when he when Che kind of gives him the boot, um, he ends up finding alternate employers um, who are magically competent and are able to to kind of find him a physical shell and, and let him loose on the world again as a kind of the same character, but also different. Yeah. So Tissamon, when he when he joined the um, the Empire of, of the Wasps, he was put into like this great mantis suit of, suit of armor and then he can fulfill his vengeance i did not see that twist coming that, that's what made book seven uh era blades such a such a fantastic book was the twist the twist at the end and where it went from there uh i i consider like era blades to be like the like the middle end of the middle trilogy and then the final three mm -hmm. is like kick, kick it off again that just threw me absolutely for a loop and then as we pick up we learn more about what the mantis kingdom are doing especially in like the in the war to come and it just tears at your heart um along the same lines of the end of book four another character who we haven't talked about and we didn't talk about for a reason is the moth kingdom um chaos he is the one who has the kind of love affair with uh che in the first um mm -hmm. four books he is mortally wounded in book three by none other than Tynisa, because she's been hoodwinked by Uktevri, thinks that she, uh, he's somebody else and basically mortally stabs him, even though he hangs around to the end of book four and then lends his help with uh, doing away with uh, the ritual. First off, I love Achaos. I feel like he was always one of my favorite characters, and I was very sad of how his arc 
ended. I always felt like, and I know if you felt this way, well, you wrote him out, so you didn't feel this way. That there was <laughs> there was more to him that you probably could have done with him. That's just me tearing at heartstrings along the way. Weirdly um, enough, he, he was originally supposed to survive. It wasn't in the plan that he would actually die at the end of book four. Um, but there was this weird. I have I have a very, especially when doing epic fantasy, I have a very keen sense of of the cost of things. And I think that if he had survived, not only would it would have deprived me of an awful lot of useful plot for the next book, which kind of followed on from the fact that he was actually dead. Um, but I think it would have been too easy. I think that in order to score the victory they do against um, the Empire and against Octibrian and so forth and so on, you need a certain amount of cost. You need to pay in blood, basically, which is a very, very epic fantasy um, feel. And he he just he was the, he was the one he was the one that obviously that just when I realized that there was very obviously and a chaos weight of death needed to be added to the scales. Um, weirdly enough, the character who was supposed to die and didn't was Drefos. <laughs> wow. And I was I'm so happy that I didn't kill Drefos off because not only is he was he just such a fun character to write for, he again he has an arc he has his own development and the, you know he. He's this phenomenally evil um, character who at the same time is Totho's other father figure when when Sten kind of isn't is is isn't gonna cut it. And then kind of realizes by the end that actually no, maybe I have done some terrible things that I shouldn't have done. And so you do get this almost redemptive moment with him right um, you know, right towards the end of the the end books. Or at least I, I think so. I think, I mean, possibly that's a bit borderline, but certainly there's there's something that he becomes a definitely a more self-reflective character towards the end. Because, of the, uh, yeah, there is a particular in, invention that is kind of linked to his name, but he, he really feels maybe I shouldn't have invented that thing. Well, it was definitely a cost in, in blood. Uh, definitely with a chaos. Um, that that one's just going to get me. That's just me personally. I just. <laughs> I mean, that, I, that's that's fair. But on, I mean, on the other hand, I think, I mean, the Scarab Path is one of my favorite books, my own too. favorite books of the series. And you wouldn't have had any of the Scarab Path without with the chaos still being alive. You've had something. It would have gone in other directions. But the fact of Che trying to get over the fact that he has died is, you know, the entire backbone of that book. And it is, I mean, you're, you're right to think of it. It is definitely a three-act um, series of books. So the first four books, the first war, that's one. And then you have three books about people dealing with the the fallout from that. You have Che, and then you have Stenwald, and then you have uh, Tanisa. And then you have the last three books are the second war and you know, the, all of the, 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 the rampant technology and, and, and Seder quietly going crazy. <laughs> or not, not so quietly. No, 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 not quietly at all. That's a different thread all altogether. <laughs> um, okay, the next one, obviously, we have to talk about is uh, is Totho. Um, end of book, end of book two. He makes a earth shattering, crushing decision um, to abandon his his friends and join the empire. But he he does it to save Che. Yes, uh, his love affair for her, um, which she will not will never she never reciprocates, but she. She loves him as a friend, but she doesn't love him as romantically. And at some point, Totho, he realizes that, but he does it anyway. He, he saves her. But the, the fallout from his choice at the end of uh, Dragonfly Falling um, has ramifications throughout the rest, rest of the series. So first, uh, there's many aspects I want to talk about with Totho, but first, that, be that betrayal. Uh, tell me how that came into your mind, and was that always the mindset of the gecko that Totho was going to turn to the to the other side, so to speak. Yes, I'm pretty sure that would that must have been part of the deal. I mean, it's worth noting, of course, the first time when he does it, when he makes the the original decision, it's not it's related to Che, but it's because it's to save Salma. Oh, that's right. Salma has been cut off, and he's in you know he's in the Wasp sort of field hospital, and Drefos has worked out that Totho is is this phenomenal artificer because he's got the 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 stuff he's found in Totho's bags. And being a, you know, being one of the sharpest tools in the box, works out exactly what's going on, and says, "Right, I will let this 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 sort of dangerous dragonfly um, renegade go if you come and work for me." Because Drefos collects other artificers; he's very, very good at not just at inventing his own stuff, but using other people's 
using other people's work. And at that point, yes, he does it to save Selma. And he does that because he knows that Selma and Che went through a lot and that Che would never forgive him. Well, that's how he sees it for making the decision to let Selma die. So it is still very Che focused. But at the same time, Dreffels genuinely, sincerely, and honestly says, has understands him as an artificer. He understands the idea of you want to change the world, you want to make stuff in a way that no one else ever does. And so whilst he's doing it for the, you know, to save other people, he's also doing it because he is, terrible as it is, he has genuinely found his people at that point. And it is one of those things you see, and um, not just with Totho, but there is this weird community within the Empire of very, very gifted artificers. And they're not necessarily the most kind of ferociously martial, kill everyone in sight type people. But the Empire is very happy to use their gifts to do to do that. But the Empire is somewhere that is very, very good to be mechanically gifted at, in. Um, and so is Collegium, but Tothos tried Collegium and he it, he bounced. They 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 couldn't accept him. And Drefos being um himself of mixed of mixed heritage can um, has no problem at all with Tothos birthright and is, and will employ absolutely anyone as long as they can walk the walk mechanically. Right. And he becomes a member of the Iron Fist under Drefos. And that initial, and then for the next few books, we get like little bits and pieces of him. And then in book in book five, he is very essential to the to the plot. He sees Che again. He makes a stand at the um, at the wall of Canapus, and then he. I thought it was that point that for Totha that he would like kind of see the light and the error of his ways, but he doesn't. Yeah, you, you double down, and he goes back to the Iron Fist, and he builds like great machines like for the for the Empire. Um, that stand, uh, how should, how should I say this? That stand that he did, there was never any inclination, like maybe he should go down another, another path. There was always, he was going to do this until he finally sees, um, kind of like the light and just a little bit of redemption in the final, in the final book. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm trying, I'm thinking now as to how, how set that was. Cause I, I, I feel that a lot of the interplay with so we it's basically you have the three-sided relationship so you have che and you have totho and you have thalric because at that point che and thalric are together which of course for totho is like the worst betrayal ever because he mm -hmm. knows thalric as the the wasp spy master who is just the antithesis of everything they were fighting against because he's not been there for this very long journey that thalric has been on um not that i suspect that would have brought him around very much so he gets to do the big hero act on the wall. He he partners up with Amnon, who is very much a an old fashioned warrior because that you know their city is quite old fashioned and they are used to very you know great big field battles and so forth. And Amnon is the big guy in the big armor who um, does the big fight. And you've got the the mole cricket uh, mayor, and you've got Totho, and they have the and. Totho gets to do his his dream. He gets to be the hero warrior, even though he's you know he's kind of at the back shooting rather than actually sort of fighting. He genuinely gets to do it. And if he had, if he could step out of it, it, the big tragedy there is if he could step out of himself just enough, he could quite possibly have reconciled with Che on a, on a, you know, on a friend's level, his history going forward wouldn't be so, wouldn't be that kind of bitter mess it ends up in. And yeah, you know, which ends up in him taking some of the, some of the most really quite bizarre, almost apocalyptic decisions later on in the in the end books. But he I suspect that you know Che with anyone else would be a problem, but Che with Thalric in particular is what he just can't get past. And so he he does that thing. He basically right, I I am now going to do the violence um sort of solution to this problem. And it's it is a solution that never really worked out for him, and he never really learns from it. It's a great shame for for that. He never realizes the error of his ways. Um, kind of does towards the towards the end, a little bit of a redemption arc, but um, especially with the assassin bug, Kinden, the uh, the name is escaping me at this point. He's introduced in book eight, and then he goes on this he goes on this mission um, from like the moth Kinden to essentially assassinate uh, the empress and how he gets mixed up with with Tissamon and the and the empire thinking that he's a loyal loyal servant so you're you're basically getting an inside man into into the empire's inner inner workings i love that little introduction 
uh, to to his arc at the end. Was he uh, ever thinking of doing him, him as like an earlier in the works? Because it felt like uh, it was a great introduction for book eight, but it kind of felt like uh, it was a little bit after after like the big events uh, happened. Well, I, I mean, book eight in, introduced quite a lot of new characters to kind of flesh out the ranks for the the new war. I he that character. I can't even think of when he occurred because I think he was quite a late thought, but I had kind of intrigued myself with the assassin bug Kinden character in books three and four, who you meet around Solano that I thought, well, all right, there is more going on with that Kinden. I would like to look at that. And then of course he also, he has this peculiar relationship with the moths and that gives us a little more on them. And so, yes, he becomes this this odd character who, who, again, he has his own little arc throughout the whole the series. He has his own priorities. Yeah, he is he is the absolutely archetypal retired assassin with a family who is called upon for one last job. And then, yes, he and Totho end up becoming a very, very unlikely double act. And <laughs> it's kind of he he helps Totho kind of um, win the war, really win the I mean. At the end of the day, he he has a pretty miserable time, but Totho also gets to do the big thing at the end. At the end of the series, it's yeah. Without without him, things go very very badly. So, um, you know, like I say, he is, he is weirdly he's the character that has more influence on the outcome of the the series of the books than absolutely anyone else. He just never really gets to enjoy doing it. <laughs> oh, I love that little uh, introduction and um, character I wanted to talk about is. Um, uh, Gigabee, Woolhouse Kingdom, uh, Woolhouse, who's, yeah. who's the historian for the at first the emperor and then the the empress in, in the later books, filled with um, all sorts of history about the old world and how um, I'm trying to uncover like secrets about the the seal of the worm, Perseida, and then we find out later that the Woolhouse Kingdom are the originators of um, necromancy, which we get a little bit of toward in the last uh, three books. Um, Gegevi, I felt always like there was always more to tell with um, with Gegevi because his um, Kinden in general, I found them very very fascinating. I think he's one of the only ones we see pretty much for for the books. What was uh, well, there's Kinden? there's one there's one student um, in the the new class at in Collegium who is a, a Woodlouse Kinden as well, and there are a couple of other very minor characters. But one of the things it's never explicitly stated, but one of the things you can spot with the collegiate student is he is both apt and inapt really wow yes so he is he does the magic classes and he also he is also an artificer and that's the thing that they do the i mean you've got a very good eye for where the gaps are because the wood there, there is a whole thing with the woodlouse kendon and where they live and what they've got and how they how they do things which is one of the most it's it's kind of it's one of those it's almost like an elden ring level mind-blowing secret of the world stuff that i never got to put in the books and if i ever do go back to the world as i, I would dearly like to um i will have to find some reason to go to where they live because they've got some bonkers stuff going on <laughs> over there oh that, that's fantastic um yeah count me on board like the wool ask <laughs> They're just fa fantastic, and Gigaby was always a breath of fresh air. And I remember listening to him, uh, Ben, do uh, his his voice. It always gave me a little bit of a little bit of a chuckle because he's kind of like an, <laughs> an older, like historian type type voice. Um, very in very insightful. Uh, one of my favorite side characters, I think, of the entire series. So definitely job well done with with that. Um, and just let's just wrap it up with one more. Um, Tynisa, her mm -hmm. plot arc going when we find out at the end of book one or towards the end of book one that she is in fact Tissamon's uh daughter and when we find out uh, who her mother is um Tissamon, i think it's a uh, atresa atressa atressa yeah yep they uh they were in love they had a falling out tynisa was the product of that and then tynisa just basically goes on like a redemption arc to become like this ultimate warrior to prove her lineage to prove like the mantid part of her and the also the spider in the spider kingdom in her like very secretive very planning very uh trying to like figure out three steps steps ahead and it, it just consumes her for the rest of the books she feels obviously like crap after she not of her own doing uh does the mortal wound on a chaos and that consumes her all the way up to the air of blades and 
those arcs and how she tries to redeem it in the final three books. Can you just break down Tynisa from beginning to end, how her arc evolves and what you were trying to um, do with her? Sure. So she um, she is unusual in that she's a she has mixed parentage, but because spiders and mantids actually look quite similar to each other, despite the fact that the mantids hate the spider, spider kingdom's guts with an absolute furious passion, she believes she's a spider kingdom who has been taken on by Senwald as a kind of adopted niece and as a companion for Cheerwell. And then, yes, as late, later in the in book one, we discover actually, no, she is the child of effectively two of Stenwald's old old friends. And Stenwald has been looking has been looking after her and raising her as his own, and absolutely not telling Tissamon, despite the fact he 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 could have done. So that's a bit of an awkward moment when Tissamon sees her and sees in her the you know, recognizably ah, I I know who your mother is. And especially as at that point, Tissamon thinks that Atrissa betrayed them, which um, so that goes spectacularly badly. And then Tynissa decides she is going to win Tissamon's approval and she is going to be the best Mantis Kingdom uh, sort of weapons master that there ever was and takes Tissamon as her role model. And as we've discussed earlier on, Tissamon is a terrible role model and you should never <laughs> try and do things, you know, you should never say what would Tissamon do in any given situation. Um, because what would Tissamon do is generally at least 500 years out of date. And so, but she does. And she, and when Tissamon dies right in front of her and she can't do anything about it, that just cement this idea of, I am going to, to deal with this by becoming the best Tissamon I can. And she ends up going to the Commonweal. So we get to see the Commonweal and she ends up kind of channeling her in a Tissamon and things go about as badly as you'd expect and she gets very badly carved up because one of the things we find out in the Commonweal is they also have Manduskinden who are not remotely as angsty as the ones in the Lowlands and seem to be really well adjusted. Uh, so it, it goes to show it's not actually like an innately Kinden thing it's just that particular society has gone completely twisted after the uh, the fall of the old days of magic. And then you know Che comes and finds her and effectively saves her from herself as much as anything and saves her from from the ghost of her father, hence um, heir of the blade. And then she kind of becomes Che's bodyguard. She becomes to Che what Tissamon is to Seder, who is sort of Che's spiritual nemesis by that point. And you know, and as soon as that that is set up, you're you know there's going to be this convergence and a big clash between them at the end, which is indeed what you get. Yeah, excellent. That last sequence with uh, Tissamon and um, and Tynisa, that that sword battle feels like it was going on for chapters and chapters. It just <laughs> it, it just keep going, keep going. And I was like so like, glued to every page. And then the final resolution with Tissamon and Stemwold meeting each other again and and like kind of walk walking off at, at the end. That was just really really touching. I felt like that was a perfect ending for for the for the two of them um were the were any of the endings easier to write than others were there characters who died at the end that you didn't really intend to at first or was there like a sudden change towards the end or was it all wrapped up uh, ahead of time um so the way i tend to write i mean I, with most of my books i plan very heavily but the thing i don't plan is the final resolution of it so i'll get all the pieces in place but i will then trust the book to have a sufficient trajectory and momentum that it will then take me to where it needs to go. And so a lot of that stuff right at the end, at the end of each of the individual books and very much at the end of the 10th book, it is the book kind of just writing its, writing its own ending at that point. So who lives, who dies? I mean, that in the entire situation with Sten and um, Tissamon right at the end came kind of out of nowhere. Really? I knew what was going to happen with Sten and where he was going to end up. But what that then led on to is kind of, it's, and it's not so much just sort of, oh, what can I do now? I will make something up. It's very much more a feeling of discovery of, oh, so that's why this has been happening. So, in, and in this case, you know, enormous spoiler, but the reason why Tissamon's ghost is physically around is he is waiting for Sten. And it's when Stenwald dies that that is the thing that releases Tissamon's ghost. And the Tissamon Sten kind of meets in that weird, not quite sure where is the real effect of the rest of Tissamon, the real Tissamon. And he, when he goes, he takes the, um, the kind of the, the vicious fighting bit that, uh, Seder was using with him. 
And I didn't plan any of that. That just kind of happened. And I, I, you get this kind of weird rush of discovery in that kind of moment as a writer. And you, and it's very much like you're, you're encountering it as the reader would encounter it and think, and yeah, I mean, I, th I think I cried a bit when I wrote that. As did I. Which sounds as terribly self-indulgent, but it's, it's at that point, it really was just the book telling me the story rather than me, me writing the book. Oh, it was lovely. I, I loved every minute of it. This is a series will forever be in my top five. I will forever be rereading it and pushing it to other uh, fellow readers and other authors as well. It's just, it has so much that you don't expect as so much stuff that you want in an epic fantasy series and it'll just shock you at every single turn that's all you can ask for in an epic fantasy series so i thank you from the bottom of my heart for writing this and sharing it with the world and i'm so glad to have you on to talk about this series because i don't know why but for the life of me it's still not as well known as i believe it should be it's like falling like under a rug and i will not stand for it i, I just won't well th thank you very much for doing your bit to kind of um spread the spread the word of it Oh, anytime. And thank you again for uh, joining us for this uh, deep dive. And I hope everyone listening, um, if you've read it, read it again and push it to other people. If you haven't read it, please um, consider uh, giving it a, a read and let me hit me up. I will always be willing to talk spoilers with everybody. And it's just a fantastic series. So Adrian, thank you so much. And I really appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you. Thank you. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. Anytime. Cheers, everybody.